Again, good morning. Welcome to New Community. It's so good to have you here. Uh, hopefully you are also enjoying that it is a little bit cooler in here this morning. Feels nice. It almost feels like fall is coming, and um, we all know what that means. That means that tomorrow it could be 100 or snowing. Either way, we have no idea, because fall could be here for a moment and gone, but I love fall in Spokane and uh, am up for the change of weather. It is, uh, again, good to see all of you. If you're new to New Community, so glad to have you here. Hopefully you will find this place to be one where you are welcomed and loved as you are, and uh, that together we will engage in the story of Jesus. Uh, we have been in a series called The Hidden Life. We've been there for quite a while. We are about to wrap up that series. We have this week and one more week. And our hope is that this series has been one in which it has challenged you, as it has me, to be contributors to the growing good of the world. Really, this idea that we could live simple, rich, deep, meaningful lives. Lives that, while hidden and unknown and maybe not uh, understood in the world at large, would recognize that the lives we are living are ones that are kingdom-focused and actually contribute much to the health of our world. That has been the desire of this series. Today, we are jumping back into the Old Testament to look at another kind of obscure or little-known character, which we will get to in a moment. Now, typically when uh, you come to a passage, you're either looking at a text that is more descriptive or prescriptive. Today, we're looking at a text that is more descriptive. So the descriptive would be, it's just describing the story that's happening, it's just communicating information, it's giving you a bit of the history, but what it's not doing is prescribing something for you. Uh, to prescribe something is to have a set of commands we're supposed to follow, information that's supposed to be essential to what it looks like to be the people of God. We are looking at something that is entirely descriptive, and uh, hopefully we will draw some things out that are meant for us in today's context and world. Um, if you remember a few weeks back, we did a little exercise. Britt was up front and had the kids wondering. Today is about wondering as well. We want to speculate about the text. We want to be curious. We want to ask some questions that are relevant to us today. And hopefully in the midst of this, again, find some things that God might communicate to us. Now, I want to warn you about one thing before we start, and that is this, that I am going to purposefully break most of the rules that you would want to follow as a public speaker on a Sunday morning, okay? So I'm warning you about that in advance. I'm not going to share some long, drawn-out story about my life and share my faults in a way that you might relate with my story and then want to, like, have your similar story. I'm also not going to have one singular point this morning that I come back to again and again, but from different angles, so it feels like the entire morning we're talking about different stuff, but we all walk out with the one thing, not doing that this morning either. Sorry. I also, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this descriptive passage breaking down like Hebrew words that you could tuck away and never use again at some other point. So none of that 
will happen this morning. Instead, what we're going to do is uh, flip the talk. And what I mean by that is typically uh, there's a lot of information. So information, 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 information. At the very end, we give one little phrase about application or we encourage you to, hey, try this at home. This would be great, right? We're going to flip that, and so we're going to give very, very little information because it's the story, we're going to read it, and you'll understand it. So we're not going to dig into that. We're going to instead look at the practicals. How do we actually apply this? We're going to go heavy on the application, really trying to look at uh, the motivations that we carry and the practices we want to embody. And... Uh, Hopefully that'll be a success. If not, I warned you in advance. All right? So our pa uh, passage this morning is Exodus 18. If you have your Bible and want to turn there, great. If not, it'll also be on the screen. Exodus 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 24 or parts of that. Starts off saying that Jethro, the priest of Midian, so like the big dog of all priests, Moses' father-in-law heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. And now Jethro had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. And then Jethro sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And that's exactly what I think Moses wanted from his father-in-law in that moment. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did what he had said. Now, we have this description of a moment in time in the life 
of Moses. Moses is in a logjam of leadership. He is overworking. Uh, he is completely attempting to do everything by himself, to fit it all in, uh, to get as much done as possible. And if we were to just choose one word, Moses is overwhelmed. He's completely underwater. So much of his life is in this day-to-day struggle of getting everything done, and we find him in a difficult spot. So much so that in the passage, Jethro highlights two things. First one he highlights is, if you keep doing this, if you keep the pace going that you currently have, if you keep trying to accomplish all that you're trying to accomplish, it is too heavy. You'll burn out, you'll wear out, you'll fail, you'll collapse, it is no good. That was the first thing that Jethro said. The second thing he didn't say, but I think his actions indicated to Moses, and that is this. Moses, we find in the story in Exodus 4, goes to Jethro, sends his wife and his kids to Jethro in Exodus 4. Fast forward, now we're in Exodus 18. Moses has been away from his wife and kids for close to a year, is what scholars would say. At this point, Jethro just brings the wife and kids. It might be that he was tired of having his daughter and the kids at home anymore and didn't want to play the role of grandpa any longer uh, in that capacity. And so he brings, doesn't even warn him, doesn't tell him until he's less than a day away. Basically, his tent was close to Moses's, and he's like, oh, by the way, your wife and kids are here. So we see this moment in which he's overwhelmed, the pace of life he cannot keep up, and it's starting to have implications on his family. I mean, this is a true little side note. I think we must acknowledge that whenever we find ourselves in a state like this, it is often ourselves, our own health, our own well-being, or those that are closest to us that are most impacted by the decisions we make. And so Moses finds himself in that scenario. It is not going well. And Jethro comes onto the scene and gives some timely advice. But the truth of the matter is I'm less concerned about his leadership structure, the way that he wants to set up groups of 10, 50, 100, 1,000. I'm less concerned about that. I'm more concerned with why did Moses find himself in this place? How did it come to this? How did Moses move into this situation in which he was completely overwhelmed by his schedule, by his life? It was having implications on his health and on the health of his family. And even beyond that, why is it that we find ourselves there? Why is it that we find ourselves in those exact kind of situations? Maybe you're even feeling that way in this moment. A bit overwhelmed, wondering, how can I get it all done? How can I do more? And what I want to do is look for a moment at some potential motivations. This is where we talked about wondering a little bit. The text doesn't tell us why Moses is in this situation, and so it allows us as the reader to to wonder, to be curious. Now, the cynics in the crowd will most likely conclude that Moses was a narcissist, that he was all about power and prestige that he was all about making a name for himself. 
And there's reason to wonder if that might be the case. So if you kind of flash back in the story with me and think about the early parts of Exodus leading to then the people moving out of Egypt, we first see Moses on the scene as someone who does not want to be a leader. He's begging God not to be the leader. And then now he is the leader of the whole nation. We also see Moses asking God not to make him go to Pharaoh. Please do not make me go. Let somebody else do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be the only one leading. And now he's the only one leading. Not only that, you see early in the story, Moses is self-conscious about the way he speaks. Don't make me speak. I don't know how to do it. I'm not good with words. I need somebody else to speak for me. Can I have Aaron who would speak on my behalf? And then now you see him, the text says, from morning to evening, presiding over all of the judicial affairs. He's being like a counselor, a pastor, a judge, all at the same time. Which requires you to be articulate, thoughtful, to communicate morning till night. So that's again a complete change from what he says earlier on. And you, he goes from being someone who's tending the flock, unknown, unnoticed, nobody's aware of him, to the entire nation waiting for his word. And there's a chance that it might have gotten to him. The position, the power, to be able to have that kind of control. And you notice in the world, and unfortunately you also notice in the church, that this is a prevalent problem. This idea of narcissism, this idea of wanting to be in control and to lead. I am going to hope and wonder that it isn't that. That maybe something else was at play. And I'm also hoping that as we kind of unpack a few more potential things that Moses might have been struggling with, one of these might relate to you. So I'm going to hope that instead of Moses being so narcissistic and wanting power and control, I'm going to hope that he sensed a strong sense of responsibility. That what he felt was this overwhelming sense that people are counting on him. That he has to come through for others. That he doesn't want to disappoint. Maybe you find yourself in a similar place. Or maybe he experienced a deep sense of worth or value from meeting other people's needs. And so maybe what he wanted so badly to do was to meet the needs of each and every person. So he was willing to sit there from morning till night. And in the midst of that, it validated who he was because he could meet the need. And he was needed. And he had this responsibility. And people would look to him as someone who would care for them. Maybe he just wanted to have it all together. Maybe he wanted to give off the appearance that he could do it all. That what mattered to him was his identity. What mattered to him was not appearing to be weak or needy, not needing to have cares, but someone who could handle it all, could take whatever stress would come, and it would be fine. And maybe what he wanted was this persona or image in the community. Another idea is that maybe he had a scarcity mindset. Maybe he thought there's nobody else here who could do what I'm doing. 
We don't have enough money. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough personnel. We don't have enough help. I've got to do more because we don't have enough. And certainly, someone else couldn't supply it. God couldn't supply it. It's got to be me. Again, maybe it was he wanted to create peace. Maybe within him was such a desire to see people relate well to one another, care well for each other, that he was willing to sit there from morning till night to say, I want a community of peace. Maybe he was driven by shame. Maybe he liked to be in control. The list could go on and on. Maybe he felt this need that he had to do it all, and if he failed in some particular way, it might reflect on him and he might not be worthy. The point is that each and every one of these potential wonderings we have about the things that motivate Moses might be the exact things that motivate us. Do you ever wonder why you or I try to accomplish it all? Why when we feel overwhelmed, we keep striving? Could it be any one of those reasons? Could it be these longings, these motivations internally that are driving us to be overwhelmed and consuming and striving and struggling? So we looked at motivations. Now I think what we want to look at is how do we acknowledge some things? And what is it that we need to acknowledge? If we find ourselves in a place where we're overwhelmed, and again, we're looking at the practicals, if we find ourselves in that situation, what do we acknowledge, and then what do we practice? Here's a few things we could acknowledge. The first is just to acknowledge that we may be in a season in which we're overwhelmed. It's okay to just say, I feel that way right now, to acknowledge it. And if for each of us, it comes for different reasons. We can't sit here and say that everyone is feeling something because of one reason. It could be your schedule, trying to fit more in. It could be the circumstances of life. The number of new children in this church is a circumstance, right? And it brings with it a sense of feeling. Maybe it's tensions within family your own or your extended family. Maybe you're looking toward the fall and this summer has felt like a reprieve, but you see the schedule, you see the expectations, you know what's coming and you've already start, even as we say it now, you sense it kind of welling up inside like, oh no, here it comes. Maybe an increased workload that you have no control over or you recently received some health news that will have implications. Or maybe someone else's drama has become your drama. And all of these things, just this morning, we might be experiencing, and the point is just to, to acknowledge it. Just to say, yeah, I'm there. That's how I feel. The second thing we could acknowledge is that we cannot have it all. I think sometimes we just have to admit that out loud to say we can't have it all. As much as we want to, as much as we strive to, that sometimes the things we're striving for and sometimes the things we want are really the opposites. 
that they don't go together well. And we can just admit that. And sometimes in our striving, what we end up doing is compromising our schedules, compromising healthy boundaries, compromising our faith, sacrificing our health and well-being. These are the things that get caught up when we can't acknowledge that we cannot have it all. I think we also have to acknowledge our limitations. Moses is in this state where he is from morning to night doing something, and at some point, he just simply needed to acknowledge there are limits to what all of us are capable of doing. There are limits to what you can accomplish. There are limits to what you're good at. To be able to say in honesty, in humility, this is something I'm not good at. This is something someone else is better at. This is something I should not do. This is something, no matter how great it is, I'm going to let go of. To acknowledge that we have limitations. Another one would be to acknowledge that the toll of hurry and stress, it can have a significant toll on your life. A story is told of a um, a man who hired some local tribesmen to kind of take this archaeology dig to a mountaintop. And they're on their way to the mountaintop. They've hired these people to like lead the way to get them there. It's a caravan of people, all kinds of stuff and equipment, and they're like charging up this mountain to get where they need to do the work they have to do. And at one point, the head of the tribe just sits down. They're on this hike, and he just stops. And everyone in the tribe stops with him. And so then every one of the leaders being like following just were like, oh no, either something bad is happening or I don't know what's going on. So they all sit as well. Period of time goes by. Even more time goes by. The leader that hired them, not happy. We got stuff to do. Marches up to the man and says, we need to go right now. And he just is like, no, we sit, we wait. Finally, after a while longer, without a word, he stands up, everyone in the tribe stands up, and they keep marching. The rest of the group starts to follow, and they go and get where they need to get. And as they're walking, the man that hired them marches right up to the leader, and he says, why did we stop and why did we wait so long? And the tribesman, the leader of the people said, it's very simple. We were going very fast and we needed to pause to wait for our souls to catch up. And I think sometimes we find ourselves in that exact same state where we go, 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 and we need to pause to wait for our soul to catch up. Some of us are wearing that down. Some of us are not in a space where we're healthy because it's been the agenda, we're driven, we want to accomplish, we can do more, it's possible. And sometimes we just need to pause enough for our soul to catch up. The last one, determine what is truly important. Often the reason we're driven by whatever appears to be urgent is because we have not clarified what is truly important. Maybe you find yourself driven by the urgent, the next thing that's coming, 
It's called the tyranny of the urgent, like, I got to do it, I got to do it, I got to do it. And that's because we haven't figured out what is truly important. When everything becomes important, nothing is important, right? When everything is urgent, then there's no discernment. There's no ability to prioritize. There's no ability to say these things matter the most and they will be done and these things can wait. These things can be a no. So we have to be people who acknowledge some of that. And then now we want to move into, again, more application. So we've spent some time thinking about what motivates us. Now we've thought a little bit about what we need to acknowledge. And last, I want to encourage you with a few practices. What are some practices that we can move into that when we feel ourselves in a state of being overwhelmed, trying to do it all to accomplish more, we can lean into these. The first one is to say no even to good things. If you want to lead a good hidden life, a life of deep impact and meaning, sometimes it requires us to say no even to good things. Story is told in Luke 4 of Jesus. He had uh, just got done teaching in the synagogue. In fact, it was his first sermon, the, one, the famous one, like um, let me and let us be the people that declare freedom for everyone, right? Uh, that the people who are blind can see, people that are in need, needs are met. And then it says, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he, Jesus, stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now here's the key. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So, What you have in verse 40 is that the sun was setting. The text tells us that when the sun is setting, Jesus is healing people. He's laying hands on people. More and more people are coming. The text says that they were bringing any and everyone that had a need to Jesus. So he's healing and praying and meeting needs and doing it again and again and again. And there's no pause. And then we're at verse 42, which says, And when it was day... Now, what we don't know about, because it doesn't specifically say, is that Jesus, did he pull an all-nighter? Was he doing like a healing fest, like this amazing moment where he's going from person to person to person to person? The text might indicate that. It might be that he was doing this all night long, no pause, no break, meeting needs. And then what's interesting is that the people come to him in the morning with more people. In other versions, it says this, but the crowds went looking, and when they found him, they clung to him so that he couldn't go on. Another version says, yet the crowds were seeking him, and they came to him and tried to keep him from leaving. The one we were reading said they sought him and came to him and were seeking to keep him from leaving, right? This idea that there's more to do. There's more that could be accomplished. There's more that you should do, Jesus, and in fact, all the things that we're asking you to do are really good things. 
There's more people to be healed. There's more, more people in emotional distress. There's more people that uh, do not have their needs met that you could supply. There's more people that need to hear the gospel. There's more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That there are some really good things for you to do. And what we see in the text is that Jesus says no. They're pushing him to do more, and he says no. He doesn't say no to bad things. He says no to incredibly good things. He says no to things that we felt like what he just said earlier in chapter 4 was why he came. I came to do these things, to proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee, to meet every need, and then those needs come, and Jesus says, I need to go. But he didn't just say, hey, sorry, and then kind of like politely walk his way out of the situation. The text indicates that he turned and left and went to the next village, which means this. As much as we don't want to say this because it sounds really bad because it's Jesus, Jesus is looking at a group of people who are needing healing, needing the gospel, needing something done. The list of people and the needs is overwhelming, and he turns his back on them and leaves. He says no to incredibly good opportunities. He's willing to say, I can't do any more in this moment. Sometimes, being a person who's actually a part of the growing good of the world is doing less, is choosing wisely, is saying no, is turning your back on good opportunities for the sake of great ones, or the ones that you sense God asking you to do, not the ones that you want to do. And sometimes it's exactly the ones you want to do, because those things align in the most beautiful way. Modeled, Jesus modeled that we have to say no. Another is to set aside margin in your life. Leviticus, interesting book, multiple times it brings up this principle. The text says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Now, you might be saying, I don't understand, one, I'm not a farmer, not in an agrarian society, I have no idea, reaping, sowing, why, none of this makes sense. Very simply, it's this. What Jesus was doing, or what God was doing in this moment to the people of Israel, is he was, as politely as we can say it, forcing generosity. He was forcing hospitality. Let people come to your fields, let people come to your homes, let people glean from the land. He was forcing limited productivity. You could have done more, you could have gleaned further, you could have reached your maximum amount of money intake on your product that you put out, and yet you chose to limit. It's forced, because it's a command. It's almost as if God realized in some unique way that humans are predisposed to overwork, predisposed to a lack of generosity, predisposed to a lack of hospitality, predisposed to wanting to maximize and produce so much that they never stop, and kind of says, well, let me slide this in to the most central of laws besides the Ten Commandments. 
and ask you to limit those things for the good of yourself and for the good of the world. So create margin in your schedule. Purposely block out times for rest, for enjoyment, for Sabbath. Block out times for family and for friends. Purposely limit your productivity. Sign up for less things. Purposefully limit your income. Purposefully limit the number of hours you work. I do recognize everything that I'm saying in this moment goes against the culture, but I don't think it goes against the kingdom. In fact, I think it looks a whole lot like the kingdom. Final idea, share the load. Share the load. Jesus in the Gospels says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If we're going to change the word slightly, come to me all who are overwhelmed, overscheduled, tired, exasperated, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In honesty, I never really understood this verse for a long, long time, in part because it seemed like Jesus was speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And I grew up in a church scenario that was all about maximizing everything, so it was like, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's the commands that I want you to follow, right? Like, all about you can do more for the kingdom, you can accomplish more, right? And that is true, and Jesus did say those things. And yet then he says something like this, like, take my yoke upon you because it's easy and it's light and it's not burdensome and you're not going to get tired and you're not going to feel oppressed under it. And I'm like, I feel all those things right now and that seems the opposite of what you're saying, so it doesn't make any sense to me. And then the more that I kind of study it, the more I thought about it, the more I listened to things about it, I became aware that part of what Jesus, at least in my opinion, seems to be indicating is that when farmers would line up oxen, they would put them into a yoke, and together the two of them would pull whatever weight was behind, the sled, whatever needed to get done, the wagon, whatever it is they're pulling, the plow, all of it was pulled by the oxen. They would take the weight and they would carry it. And they would sit in this yoke that would lean upon their shoulders and they would drive whatever that weight was forward. That metaphor made a lot of sense, but it also is like, man, yokes, they seem like they hurt the cow. I know they probably don't, at least I would assume farmers say they don't. But in my case, I'm like, man, that's still a lot of weight. That's still a lot to be done. That's still a lot to be carried. And then it dawned on me that what he's saying is that I'm in the yoke with you and that what you're simply doing is putting your head in the hole and acting like you're pulling stuff because I got the whole thing. You realize you're like with God in it and he's pulling. He's carrying the weight. He's the one driving it forward. He's the one seeking to accomplish what it is that you're collectively trying to accomplish. 
And instead of me feeling like I'm the one straining against the weight of it, the expectations, in Moses' case, the overwhelming sense of responsibility or the guilt or the shame or the struggle or whatever, in that moment, it's us recognizing that we are pulling the weight with God, which means there's a whole lot less to pull. David Ford says it this way, the wisest way to cope is not to try to avoid being overwhelmed and certainly not to expect to be in control of everything. Rather, it is to live in the midst of the overwhelmings in a way that lets one of them be the overwhelming that shapes the others. Ford calls this the home or school where the practicalities of coping can be learned. Here's what I think Ford isn't necessarily getting at, but what we might be able to get at, and that is this. The call for us is to allow Jesus Christ to be the one overwhelming presence that shapes the other overwhelming presences in our life. When we allow Jesus to become the school, it, then it allows us to faithfully live in the midst of whatever the weight is that God is carrying. I would also suggest that because all of life in the kingdom of God is communal, that God is not only just asking us to share the load with Him, that there is an understanding that it is shared among us communally. And what I mean by that is we can almost think of our community as a home or a school for the overwhelmed. A school for us to sit in a space where together we can be honest about faith, where together we can be curious and ask questions, where together we can practice wisdom, where we could be vulnerable, where we could set aside our schedules, where we could admit weakness, where we could lean on one another to bear one another's burdens, where we could develop a corporate and a personal spirituality and a spiritual identity where we could keep one another accountable and where we could follow the advice of Jethro and lean into contentment in an unhurried life. That is my prayer that we would be those people, people that lean into contentment, that lean into an unhurried life and that allow God to carry the load. Let's pray. God, thanks for allowing us to wonder a bit. Thanks for giving us passages in the scriptures that are only descriptive, that don't demand, um, that don't command us to do something, that don't create a list of to-dos, but rather you give us things that we can draw wisdom from, truths that we can wrestle with. And God, I ask that we would wrestle with those this week that we consider with our small group or with friends or with coworkers what it means to create margin, to acknowledge that we can't do it all, to figure out what things are truly most important and to figure out how to make you the center of all of them so that we can strive less and follow more. God, in the midst of this, may Moses' example of being overwhelmed be one that reminds us that we could be overwhelmed by you and that we could sit in your school and in this home, this community, to be a place 
of rest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.